What is so different about the body of the 1970s, my grandparents, for example, in the 70s, versus the body of um, older people today? Because, you know, when I, in, in the 70s, you know, my grandparents were in their 50s, right? And so I'm looking at, you know, I'm, I'm not 50 yet, but I'm looking at my approaching 50th birthday, and I'm thinking, God, you know, my, my grandparents were felt, they were fit. They were water skiing, hiking, um, they, they really looked great. And they never looked puffy, and that's just what I call it, puffy. They, they just looked um, lean and uh, um, like humans. I don't know how to describe it other than that for the moment. So the, my, my mindset was, you know, tell me, tell me about the 70s body, what was going on differently then? And when I look at the 70s body versus, you know, the puffy bodies now, I say to myself, God, you know, I would, I would love to be the 70s body. That interests me more. The Modern Longevitarian Podcast. Welcome. I'm your host, Scott Stanfield. I interview some of the most successful people in the worlds of mindset, wellness, and longevity. Thank you for joining us. You can listen to The Modern Longevitarian on most podcast platforms. If you have Apple Podcasts, please subscribe. Before we get going, here's a huge thank you to our sponsor. Please stay tuned for an important message about how to boost your immune system with a single supplement from Electrolife. Today's show is about the brain-body connection and how mindset plays a major role in our fitness today and for the years to come. Our guest, Malia Brown, opened my eyes to the overarching importance of laughter and living a life that is fun and easy. Here we go. On today's show, we're going to dig deep in the most important aspect of living in our prime longer while getting stronger. That's mindset. Our guest today was diagnosed with a life-threatening issue in 2005 and was informed that she needed brain surgery. Because she believes that we manifest disease in our body, she intensified her research to understand the brain-body connection. She is heart-centered and a life mastery coach who specializes in guiding professionals, students, and athletes to live the life they love living, the soul that is on fire to amplify peace in the world. Malia Brown, Yoka Show. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Scott. That is a really lovely introduction and um, much, much appreciated. And you also tapped into one of my lesser known talents, which I guess will come to at some point during this conversation. Arigatouzaimasu. <laughs> well, my Japanese is, um, um, is uh, well, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. My, my Japanese <laughs> is mostly uh, things that involve like karate and sushi menu items, maguro and sake and, and let's see, maki and sashimi and sushi and nigiri and things like that. So, <laughs> but yes, you have done a lot of work with, uh, with the Olympics and being a translator for radio and TV and also being on one of the Japanese or a committee to the Japanese Olympics at one point too. So that is something that I knew that was a big part of your life and I wanted to include that. Thank you. 
I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate to have worked with some of the top athletes in the world, um, worked for the Olympic Games. I really understand mindset from um, the sophisticated athlete's conversation, and I also understand it from the everyday perspective. How do we get to that place without having to put all of our time and effort into one particular experience? In other words, how do we become the best part of ourselves without having to deny that we still need to have a life. You know, we'd still love to have a family. We'd still love to have um, time and freedom, um, which is a little bit different than most elite athlete experiences. A lot of elite athletes are very um, single-minded, and they should be for what they're up to. And then there's what's going on in the rest of the world. We want to be well-rounded. And so all of us have an opportunity here to look at it from an elite athlete perspective, especially in terms of longevity, and also to see that we can have everything we want for our lives. So I, I really, I absolutely appreciate that you recognize that part of me, Scott, and, and that you could see the value in it for your listeners. You're welcome. Peter Atia, he's a MD that has a, a podcast called The Drive. He actually talks about the sport we should be playing is how to be the best 100-year-old And how do we do that if we only have, say, 12 hours a week to get there? Uh, And, and, you know, for me, that means a lot of different things, like the, you know, obviously mindset and the, but how do we design a exercise program around being the best 100 year old? And that's basically seeing what, as people age, what do they struggle with? And how do we reverse engineer that to work on those things when we're maybe in our late 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? and on to extend our prime years of our lives while at the same time getting stronger. And I think the biggest piece of that is mindset. So my first question is going to be, how do you define mindset? Yeah, what a great question. And what a beautiful inquiry for all of us, no matter our age and life, to inquire about, you know, what game are we playing? I love that perspective that you talked about. And why wouldn't that game be the best 100-year-old possible, best 100-year-old self that you could possibly be? And mindset is a willingness to take a look at what it is that you're thinking about and what it is that you're feeling and what actions you're taking that are in alignment with your thoughts and your feelings. And then are you getting the results that you want? That's how simple mindset is. We have an equation for it that maybe we'll get to later on. But that's kind of a sneak preview of what's available here. Mindset is very simple. It seems that, but a lot of times the subconscious has to is, has a little bit more say in this than what we like to admit, I believe. And it seems to be the driver or in control. And maybe we're, a lot of us are on autopilot instead of actually, as we want to eat better, we know that that candy bar or that piece of cake or that dessert may not be the best thing for us, but we still have it anyway. We make room for it at the end of a, a dinner, you know, or, you know, something like that. So what, what role does, A, why does that happen? And B, what role is subconscious playing in the old, the, the driving the bus here? Wow. Boy, I think if I could um, answer that with a definitive conversation, I might be the new Freud. <laughs> so I'll answer it from what, I've, from what I've experienced and what my clients have experienced. And I think um, what people who 
are interested in mindset could experience if they wanted to. So when we are talking about mindset and, you know, the word the subconscious comes up or the conscious comes up, it, we often think that there's two sides of ourselves, the side of ourselves that we are aware of, and then, as you mentioned, the patterns that we run continuously. And what I'm interested in and what I spent um, a good 20 years in developing for my own understanding, which is why I decided that I had created my brain conversation that led to brain surgery eventually, is that there's a pattern inside of my thinking that possibly caused my own dis-ease. And, of course, we also use that word as disease. And so mindset and subconscious for me was how in the world did I get to be at a place in my life where the body, which is a perfect system, unimpacted by our thinking actually is a perfect system. How do we know that? Because it starts growing in the womb without us. The body grows right away in the womb. And so the body is this perfect system, and then we start impacting it with particular thinking. And that thinking, depending on who you're talking to, is a electromagnetic frequency. How do we know that? Because we have something called a nervous system. And the nervous system sends out electrical impulses. So mindset could just be boiled down to the electrical impulses coming from our brains. And there you have kind of subconscious thinking as well as conscious thinking, right? Consciously aware of what thoughts you're having. And then maybe there's that pattern running underneath. So that's the first answer, right? What is the subconscious? This is it's just a pattern and it's an electrical pattern. And then ask me your second question again, so I make sure I address it like Freud would. <laughs> I, I'm so so overwhelmed with the first answer, I can't remember what the two-part question was. <laughs> oh, I remember now. Why do, why do we have that dessert when we said we didn't want it? Why do we have the extra piece of cake, or why do we, why do we make decisions that are bad for us when we know the right decision is to not do it, is really what it is. Yeah, so even thinking about it again is what's so interesting. And the reason I had you repeat it was because there are, there are patterns in us of maybe having dessert, maybe starting when we're a little kid. We have um, family members that want to reward us for being good. Or we, at the end of a softball game, everybody goes out and celebrates with pizza and ice cream. And so we get connected to when I do this, then this follows. That's the mm -hmm. pattern. And oftentimes, I'll tell you, in our house, for example, um, we, we didn't eat necessarily a lot of sweets growing up. But what we had as a pattern was an appetizer. So mm -hmm. first you sit down and you have an appetizer, and then you might have a salad, and then you have your dinner. And so when I would go out to eat to restaurants, I noticed myself sitting down and looking at the appetizer menu first. Mm -hmm. It was a built-in prescription in the way that my family of origin brought me up. Or some people would call it, you know, um, an hors d'oeuvre, an aperitif, um, some way of a snack. Want a snack before dinner? We do this often with right. our kids, right? <laughs> uh, would you like a snack before lunch? I realize it's two hours before lunch. You could have a snack. 
right? Right. And so we've prepped ourselves with the thinking that what comes before a main meal is a snack or something small. Um, so that's just a way of thinking, and we take that pattern out into the world with us. And now we, we maybe even have our own children, and rather than interrupting that pattern, it's a pattern that we give to them too. Well, I've been doing research on the importance of water, and what I found was there was a study that had these two groups, and one group drank two glasses of water before a meal, and the other group just ate the meal. They ended up consuming more calories because they weren't as full, and so if you have an appetizer of two glasses of water, you'll probably lose weight faster than if you... <laughs> didn't even have a normal appetizer. So and that's, that's another mind shift, shift there as well, right? And an excellent tool to experiment with in our lives. So the, the great news about patterns is all patterns can be interrupted. They are just yes. a pattern. And a new pattern can be installed in a very short order. And that's because of the way the brain works. There's wiring in the brain they're neurons. They literally come together over time. The more time you do something, the more those neurons come together. They never actually touch. There's this neuronal glue that holds them together. As far as we know from the brain perspective, that glue actually is a finite quantity. Neurons are an infinite quantity. So far as we know, you turns out you can teach an old dog new tricks. And the reason you can is because simply the moment you break a pattern or interrupt the pattern, the neuronal glue comes a little bit apart. So then mm -hmm. if you install a new pattern right away, let's say we take two new drinks of water for the next week before every meal. So we that what happens is that neuronal glue eventually, because the neurons have backed apart from that pattern, it starts to float around in the brain again. And it goes right on up to something else that we're doing that's repetitive. It's very simple. And I think what you and I have talked about in the past is how focused we are on modern longevitarian is actually something that can be fun and easy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, fun and easy is something that I think it has to be. I mean, there's the old saying of what's the best diet or what's the best exercise program, and the answer is, the one that you would stick with. And I don't think we're going to stick with something that is dreadful and hard. We're going to stick with something that's fun and easy. And that's why some people like keto and some people are vegan and some people are, you know, love yoga and some people love running, you know, ultra endurance races. There's differences and preferences for each person based off where they are in the process and what they enjoy doing and, a, that starts with their mind, the, the mindset and, and where they are with that. So my next question would be, what is the connection between mindset and imagination? What a wonderful question and a beautiful way to segue into how the mind works. And this goes, you know, back to the conversation of subconscious and conscious, but we can just drop the, those two words all together, can't we? Because we all have an imagination. And how do I know that? I know that because if I say to you, imagine your refrigerator. Are you seeing a picture of your refrigerator or are you seeing the word refrigerator? Oh, I see the refrigerator. 
You see a picture of it. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So the mind works in terms of images. So in this wonderful, fun way, we tap right into an image, and now we're inside the image, and we have the ability to imagine that image in any way we want. So now I say to you, imagine your refrigerator, and now paint it purple. And underneath where the refrigerator would normally be, let's give it big red Converse tennis shoes. And coming out of the top of your refrigerator, we're going to see two antennas, kind of like the old TV antennas, only these are going to be waving and more like you'd see on the little, you know, on a little slug or something. They're like, you know, going up and down. Can you see that refrigerator that's purple with red Converse and kind of slug-like antennas? I can, yes. Yeah. It's very easy for the mind to do that. The mind, by the way, loves things that are absolutely absurd. I'm deliberately walking us through this exercise for the absurdity of the imagination. And why is that? If, if you choose to be an ultramarathoner or if you choose to be a vegan or if you choose to be an MMA or maybe you just choose to be a little bit healthier than you were last week, whatever it is, you can use the power of your imagination and tap right into those results. And the rest of you will follow. The rest of you will follow. And this is what's so great about the imagination. It doesn't know any different. The imagination knows no different. I, I don't know how many times, but um, many times people watching the Olympics, they'll hear Olympians' visions. Well, they're using their imagination. And they're imagining themselves standing on the podium, receiving the gold medal. They're feeling what it feels like to bow their head, to get the ribbon of the gold medal placed around their neck. They're feeling the weight of that medal on their chest. And they're just about to start hearing their national anthem. And their body starts to fill and swell with a sense of happiness and pride and accomplishment. And they're, and they're, oh, that's only happening in your imagination. But if you do that over and over enough, the body will respond. And this is the beauty of the mind-body connection. Well, there's, there's a couple things in that. One is, I've heard Simon Sinek talk about how Olympic athletes reframe the feelings of nervousness into the mindset of they're excited about the race or the competition, not nervous about it, because the same feelings you have can be defined in two different ways. And so that's, that's, that's at the beginning of it. You're, and that may be because they're seeing the end result, which is getting the medal and the pride and the anthem being played, you know, over the auditorium or the, the track and field or wherever they are. You know, can you talk a little bit about the reframing of of the nervousness, the butterflies, into being excited about embarking on what they've been training for their whole lives to do? Well, so the the benefit of um, any experiment, including what your listeners are listening to right now, is doing an experiment with their own lives. So you don't have to believe anything that we're talking about here, but you could you could choose your imagination faculty right now and be with us in this. And so let's just say this. When you were first a small child, 
you began going into school, and it was maybe a lot of fun for some people, maybe it was not as fun for others, but let's say you sat down in math class, and this is, you know, you're, you're only in the second or third grade, you're really starting to learn your numbers, addition, subtraction, those are the things that you're learning. And every time you sit down in that chair, you know that today you are going to be faced with some kind of new math consideration. And so he's, okay, here comes math. But at first you think, oh, I'm not any good at this. These are just your thoughts. I'm not any good at this. But then you start to access more of the addition. One plus one equals two. You got it. One plus one equals two. And your teacher says, okay, go home this week and memorize one plus one equals two, one plus two equals three, one plus three equals four, one plus four equals five, and she takes you all the way up to the number ten. And you go home and do that. And you come back next week, and you're sitting in your chair again, and now the teacher says, what's one plus five? And you've been thinking about it all week long. Every single day you thought about it. What's going to happen next week? You're going to get a quiz, right? Yeah, you're probably going to get a quiz. And right? how are you going to feel during that quiz? Well, it probably depends on if you actually did your work, right? Did your studying and did those things. Or Great noticing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or it's going to be what you have to compare that with, right? I think that a lot of people who maybe play sports or do some sort of competition see tests as something that are easier than people who don't have anything to, to give it perspective on where it is. It may be the most most life-threatening thing that some people do is a math test where other people are doing other things that are – that lower the level of intensity of a math test. Yes, and either way, it's all about the repetition of doing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the repetition of doing. So that's why we're inviting everyone into an experiment. Because you don't have to believe this is true for it to be true for you. What would be valuable would be starting to experiment with it. You know, one thing that you said at the beginning was, what if the sport I was playing is to be the best 100-year-old? So we think about that. It's, okay, what if the sport I was playing is to be the best 100-year-old I could possibly be? And then we start thinking thoughts that are consistent with that. Now we're coming from the medal-winning moment for us, just like the athlete is. And in the medal-winning moment, I'm 100 years old, and I'm going, wow. My body feels limber. My mind feels agile. I'm engaging with my grandchildren, maybe even my great-grandchildren. We're all having a family picnic. And I am about to do a one-legged sack race with my granddaughter, who is 25. That's kind of exciting. <laughs> yes. Isn't it? Yeah, so very exciting. Somebody, and, Yes, and anybody can do this experiment. You can then go to your imagination right now and think, okay, the sport I'm playing is the best, my best 100-year-old self that I could possibly be. What would happen next in that scenario? Using my imagination. And we start to build a new relationship with those, with the thoughts, right? A new relationship with our thoughts. And so now you say, well, Hmm. Am I getting nervous? I'm not nervous at all. Are you nervous in that scenario? 
No, you just say, I may have the salad instead of the chicken fingers. Well, it might be pretty <laughs> you're, simple you're, when you get to dinner table. Yeah. Right, exactly. It helps with your decision-making process. If I'm going to extend this out, or in that scenario, right, you're like going, okay, now you have a decision to do this. Do I skip this workout or do I do this workout? Do I do I have this for dinner or this for dinner? And it helps you make those choices because you're, you've got this end result that's set out in front of you. Yep, and anytime we're not getting results that are – what we would love to get, we can start with the result we would love. This is the beauty of the way the mind works. We can start with the result we would love and we can work back to it through imagination. And the mind will absolutely assist us in the thoughts that are consistent with that result. If you don't think that's the case, look at your results in your life currently and think of one place, and you and I will do this together and we invite people to do this with us, and they don't have to. They can just listen. But, you know, you could take this, choose a result, Scott, that you would love if it was showed up differently in your world right now. Let's say more free time. Okay, you would love more free time. Right. And, and if you were having free time, how would that show up in your life? What would you be doing who would you be who would you be seeing or spending time with or how would you be spending that free time oh my family would be the first one on the list uh, i would spend more time in nature i would probably feel more calm I, I, calmness comes to me when i think about if i had more free time Okay, great. So you've already been able to connect with both the Im- image and the feeling. And this is what's really important for people to experience is that all I did was go into my imagination. I started thinking about, oh, geez, I would really love more free time. And that would be the result I would love in my life. And if that was the case, what thought would I be? Oh, my gosh, I'd be spending time with my family. I'd be spending more time in nature. And did you get a few images? Did any images come into your mind of Spending time with family? Yeah, it did. It, you know, one was hiking. Another one was, you know, family dinners. Yeah. You, you know, just just connecting. Cooking in the kitchen. We love cooking. Yeah. So I think those are things that would, you know, would definitely fit in there. Yeah. So remember what I said initially. The mind doesn't think in terms of word. It thinks words it thinks in terms of pictures so you started thinking well you know free time would be great and it would be great with my family and then suddenly pictures of you hiking with your family pictures of you making family dinners cooking together came right into your mind and the second those pictures came into your mind then suddenly, and you're, you're very good at this, and it's wonderful that you're teaching this and sharing this with other people, you could feel that feeling. It right. felt calm to you. It did. It felt very calming. Yeah, it felt very calming. And other people do that too all day long. And sometimes they use their imagination in the opposite direction than it was intended. 
Like, so for example, your child comes home, or you and your child make an agreement, they're a teenager, you say, you know, the, the curfew in our house is 11 o'clock, be home by 11. And your child doesn't get home by 11. Your child gets home by 11, 15, child's still not home. 11.30, your child's still not home. You haven't heard from them. What happens to your mind? Well, you start thinking, some people start thinking the worst, right? What's happened? What's gone wrong? Hope you haven't gotten a car accident. Uh, maybe yeah. they're at a place they shouldn't be or, you know, nothing happens, you know, no, nothing good happens after midnight. We're going to be there soon, right? So all those types <laughs> of things come rushing into your, into your mind for sure. And heaven forbid, those are not things that you want to happen, but you've just used your imagination to literally terrorize yourself. Exactly. It's literally to terrorize yourself. And we had an example before where you could use your imagination to feel calm. Right? I, man, I, if I right. had more time and freedom in my life, I would love to be with my family. I'd love to be hiking. I'd love to be cooking together. And suddenly we felt calm. And this is the power of the imagination. And this is the power that athletes have harnessed. This is the power that CEOs are harnessing all day long. If you're reading any um, books by, you know, um, Becoming Superheroes, you know, these are all books that are identifying the power of the mind. And we're all using it. We're just not clear about how we could use it to our own benefit. And you had a great idea, which was, wow, what if the sport I'm playing is I'm the best 100-year-old? version of me well that's dr peter atia that's i didn't that's not my idea but i i love the concept of it and i think that's something that i've been working on for uh eight years now so and that's where modern longevitarian came from because at eight years ago i was losing 40 pounds for the second time and and i was 40 so 40 pounds at age 40 and I was, I did most of that work by, it was diet and exercise, but the diet was actually intermittent fasting. And eight years ago, intermittent fasting wasn't on anybody's radar. I just happened to have been gifted a book titled The Warrior Diet. And I was struggling to lose weight. I lost 10 pounds over a couple months. I knew I needed to lose weight. I wanted to lose weight. And I was struggling. And in the first week of doing The Warrior Diet, I lost seven pounds. So that was a pound a day. Now what I was doing was putting my body in ketosis, not looking back and understanding this. And I, some of that was water weight, but I still intermittent fast to this day. And that was eight years ago. And what happened was, is I, people were trying to pigeonhole me into or paint me into a corner about defining what I was doing to lose weight. And there was so much more because I had been on this trail a long time. I'm trying to live healthier because my parents had both had cancer in their 50s. And I was like, it's not about being a vegetarian. It's not about being a flexitarian. It's not a, I'm a longevitarian. And that's where that really came from. And a longevitarian looks at it more in a holistic way. And over that time frame of understanding, this is where I developed the new macronutrients, which is basically my mindset around trying to live my best life where I need to do deep breathing exercises and, and get the right amount of water uh, each day. There's a proper amount of fasting and a proper amount of food and, and the right, 
you know, what I call mid-level nutrients for a person, which are fat, protein, and carb, which are the, the, the older macronutrients, the right amount of sleep and whatever you did for your sleep type as well, and then movement and exercise and how all that fits and works together. And all of that fits under the umbrella of having the right mindset of extending out our prime years for longer. But what I want to get back to is what you were talking about, which is the results formula, which is one of the most important things I've learned over the years, which is what you were referring to is where your thoughts uh, lead to your feelings, lead to your actions, and then determine your results. And what's what you're saying, if you were looking at a result, whether it's the best 100-year-old or saying, hey, I don't want to get cancer until I'm 85 versus 55, you know, extending that out for three three decades, you know, you start with that result and then it will change your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions and help bring those results into play moving forward. An important message from our sponsor, Electrolife. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my favorite supplements on the entire planet, Magnesium with Immune Boost, made by Electrolife.com. Why magnesium? When it comes to nutrient deficiencies, magnesium ranks at the top of the list. It's right there with iron, iodine, and vitamin D. Just like sodium and potassium, magnesium is an important electrolyte. Electrolytes are needed to balance the water in our bodies, balance our body's pH level, and move nutrients into our cells while moving waste out. If you're keto like me, you truly know the importance of electrolytes and hydration. Believe it or not, Magnesium is needed for more than 300 biochemical reactions in the human body. Some people say up to 600. Let me tell you why I trust this specific product made by Electrolife for me and my family. This supplement contains a high-grade magnesium plus potassium and over 60 other minerals that are key to our health. It's produced from the Great Salt Lake. And no, you can't just go over and dip your water bottle in and start drinking lake water. It takes three years from the point of capture to the point that this becomes a consumable supplement. Nowhere else on earth will you find a richer source of minerals and nutrients, and that's the truth. The other reason I love this magnesium is that it's easy to use. Just add it to whatever you're drinking. All you need is two droppers full each day. If you want to get started with one of the best magnesium supplements on the entire planet with an added immune system booster, Click on the link in the show notes or go to electrolife.com forward slash shop. That's electrolife with a Y is spelled E-L-E-C-T-R-O-L-Y-F-E.com. And now back to the show. Absolutely. And it does it in the way that's fun and easy. You know, that's that's one of the, you know, things, because one of the questions I have for you is how important is mood and laughter? Because I think fun and easy involves laughing, right? And, and a lot of times we don't talk about this. I can go do the workout, but I can be angry that I'm doing the workout and I'm not going to get as much out of it. Or I can enjoy it and I could do something that is fun and easy for me versus doing something that is hard and and makes me pissed off for doing it. So my, back to my question, how important is mood and laughter and combining that with being fun and easy? Well, let me frame it in the way that I know best, which is inside my own experience. 
Um, in 2005, I was in a parade. I was in a vehicle that went up and down, and they called it the Buckin Ford. So you can imagine this 1924 Model T Ford with an open air. There's two passengers. There's a passenger and a driver in the front seat, and there's three people in the back seat. So it's a pretty squishy little place if you've ever seen a Model T. Um, and there's no top on this. It has an open bimney, an open wireframe. And we it goes bucks up in the front, literally, like a, a horse would buck. And then it comes down. And that is why it's a parade vehicle. So we're in this parade vehicle. It bucks up. We come down. And we come down just hard enough that the rear tail, the three people in the back seat, go launching up into the air. I'm one of those three people. And there's a metal bar, as I mentioned, there's no canvas for any kind of um, cover, but there's a metal bar there. I busted my head on that metal bar. And um, when we came back down, it was pretty obvious it was going to be a fairly big head bump. I'm going to have a giant egg on my forehead. Um, It happened instantaneously. You know, we finish out the parade, and I go, oh, dear. This is a big this is a big experience for me. You know, I'm injured on my face. And more than likely had some kind of concussion. So I get diagnosed, everybody says you're okay, but you got a concussion. I, a month later, I have a spontaneous nosebleed and I go, I think I'm going to have an MRI. I have this MRI and they say, "Yep, you have this huge concussion and you have a broken blood vessel that's over your right ear that's leaking blood." And I say, okay, great. What does that mean? This is just an experience as far as I'm concerned. I was just fine yesterday, so I must be fine today. And the doctor looks at me and he says, you need brain surgery. And I said, excuse me? And he said, yes. You know, your your concussion along the back of your brain is just going to have to heal on its own. You know, people in sports get them. When you get in a car accident, you get them. The blood has to go back on its own. Um, but for the thing over your ear, which was just an absolutely, totally happenstance, it had nothing to do with that particular car accident, um, you need brain surgery. Otherwise, that could blow, blow any time, and, you know, you would be having basically a stroke at 28 years old. So that was not up. I was not up for that. So when we're looking at the results formula, this is why this matters. I spent five years on a journey to understand how in the world I could have this broken blood vessel and have had it discovered, what I call my happy chance, all right, a happy chance. So some people could have said, oh, my gosh, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. I now have to have brain surgery. This is mindset. But I said, you know, I think it's my happy chance. I learned that if I get this taken care of, you know, I'm I'm probably going to have a real long life, and I'm never going to have to think about maybe accidentally checking out due to a stroke. So, um, happy chance, happy chance. I still keep thinking it's happy chance, but he said I needed it right away. And I said, whoa, I'm going to wait and try and get access to this. So to fast forward, after doing a lot of research, spending a lot of time in circles where I could understand the brain-body connection, a friend of mine said this, hey, you know what? Brain surgery doesn't sound like fun, and you're all about fun. And he was exactly right. Like you and what you did to, you know, there's a book that came along and then suddenly you said, okay, I'm going to do this intermittent fasting. 
I said, oh, my gosh, brain surgery could be fun. And I reoriented my entire mindset to brain surgery could be fun. I called the brain surgeon. I said, geez, I'd like to talk to you one more time. He said, what more could you possibly have to ask me after five years? And because I'd been in quite a few times. We'd had brain scans quite a few times. I said, I, I just want I have two more questions. So we went in there. I put on my cowgirl hat. I threw my rollerblades over my shoulder. And I walked into his office. I said, I want to make sure I'm going to be this way or better on the way out. And he looked me in the eye and he said, yes, you will be. And two days later, I was in brain surgery. And if that's not fun enough for you, the name of my anesthesiologist was Dr. William Shakespeare. (laughs) So you asked me, what does it matter? Right? What does laughter matter? For me, it mattered everything. I wasn't going to have brain surgery without being clear that brain surgery could be fun. And I was also very clear because I'd done a lot of study that I was the one creating my own experience of the brain surgery. I know you're a huge fan of Einstein. That reminded me of the quote of the most important decision we can make is whether we live in a friendly or hostile universe. Is there a connection to that? Well, I certainly love Einstein, and that is a wonderful um, mindset tool is to ask ourselves where we are on that. There's a hundred other, you know, infinite number, if it's not just a hundred, but certainly an infinite number of other questions we could ask ourselves. But if we ask ourselves that one and hear the answer, what's available? What's next? Let me ask you. Do you live in a friendly or hostile universe? Do you live in a friendly universe? Right. I live in a friendly universe. Yeah. uh, Yes, you you definitely live in a friendly universe. I, I made the connection that what that meant, because Tony Robbins says life doesn't happen, and multiple people say this. I don't know actually who originated this. Life happens for you, not to you. So if you live in a friendly universe, life is happening for you. If you live in a hostile universe, life is happening to you when you get to put yourself in this place of being the victim versus like, oh, wait a minute, this is something that's happening for me and it's going to help me in some way. And if you combine that with something like, you know, there's plans for us to prosper, it really helps us understand that how you know, and no pun intended, but how mindset is connected to how we even perceive what is happening to us in the moment, right? And what's happening to us on a macro level or a micro level and how we process that will will determine what our response is. And, and, and I think that that's what you're saying. You, you were saying that you weren't going to have brain surgery and you didn't have brain surgery until you – knew it was going to, you could come out of it the way that you went into it and that you could be the same person that looks at life as fun and easy. Exactly. Exactly. And the power in that for me was I was literally only one thought away from the result that I wanted. One thought. And one question, right? Or two questions. 
Yeah. What do you see as those questions? Brain surgery is a very, very interesting piece of the the makeup of our lives here. In because my son, he's 18 now. When he was four and a half, he and our dog had a head-on collision, and he got knocked over and hit his head on the driveway and on a rock that was lined in the driveway and fractured his skull and ended up having to be life-flighted and having surgery and it was 43 stitches. And and we had to make the decision whether our son was going to have to have brain surgery. And my wife and I looked at that two different ways. You know, for me was, okay, this is what has to happen. And the sooner we do it, the sooner the healing begins. You know, and my wife was wanting to, we couldn't wait five years, you know, like you, because this was in the moment that, the, that this was happening. That blood was bleeding into his, his skull, pushing on his brain, and they had to remove this blood clot, and they had to stop the, the bleeding. And so it's it's a serious it's a serious decision. I mean, and I know why it probably took five years for you to make it. I mean, if we had five years, we probably would have waited that long as well, but we didn't, and so we had to make the decision, and and we did, and it was. Um, it was hard. It was a hard decision. We didn't sleep for a couple of weeks, you know, when all that stuff went down. And so, it, you know, so I understand concussions and brain injuries and, and all those things more than, than I, than I wish I had to because of all the things that we've been through with that. I've had my fair share of concussions myself for playing sports and, and, uh, in, in, in my past, but, you know, those those questions are different for each person, I think. And, and some people go into it blindly, and some people, you know, like you, want, you know, ask the same question, am I going to come out of this the same way as I'm going into it? And I think that's an extremely important question, and I think a lot of people have that one. Yeah, and you'll notice on the end of my question, I said, am I going to come out this way or better? Right. And for me, that was a very powerful part of my decision-making process. And I think it is for, you know, a focus in modern longevity. Do I want to come out of this the same as the generations before me? Or would I love to come out of this better? And for me, you know, in terms of my family of origin, for example, you know, we have a long life span in our family. Um, my grandmother is currently still alive on my father's side. She's 96 years old. Um, my grandmother on my mother's side was 93. When I look at their quality of life at their ages, I'm absolutely going to have what they have or better. Absolutely. Not maybe. Absolutely. And I declare that for myself. So it does make a difference on whether or not I eat an extra piece of peanut brittle. And I don't right. need to be flippant about it, you know, but that becomes a fun dialogue in my own mind, right? Like, I'm, like, I'm clear. I'm coming out that way or better. Like, is that being a brittle going to get me there? Maybe, maybe not, right? And some days I don't right. necessarily maybe make that choice, but it's not because I'm not coming out this way or better. This way or better is guiding me 
one thought at a time. One thought at a time. And I don't have to, so you have, know, beat myself up over it. Right. So have you asked um, anybody in your family from those generations what the secret is or what they what they look at? Or have you noticed something from that they do um, or it's just part of just part of the mindset of your family? <laughs> well, and that leads me to just a really fun, quick story. Um, you know, COVID-19 is a very difficult conversation for all of us to be in in terms of mindset. And there will be a time when we're not thinking about it on a daily basis. But in my case, I went to see my grandmother um, before there were any kind of stay-at-home conversations. And um, she actually ended up falling on my way there, and she ended up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, she needed a full-time caregiver. So between my mother and I, we rotated um, as her full-time caregivers. It was amazing, the timing, how it worked out. And um, as she came to a place where, you know, having hit her head in that fall, as she came to a kind of place where she was like, oh, my goodness, I'm feeling better now, and she didn't need a full-time caregiver, then the news of COVID-19 started to spread through her retirement home, and they started to tell us that we could no longer be with her. We couldn't be in the facility with her as her caregivers. Hmm. So I'm telling you this because I think it demonstrates something better than me just asking her, just asking her that question. So we're three days into the COVID-19. You know, we, we, the second day in, we get to see her uh, for about two hours. The third day in, she's only allowed to come outside the care facility and we're standing in the rain in Oregon. It's a little bit brisk because it's March, and it's pouring outside, and we're underneath a single cover outside of this retirement facility. And, you know, she's, she's 96 years old. She loves to be warm and comfortable. Who doesn't? But they're not going to mm-hmm. let anybody inside, so we're going to have to visit on this walkway. And she sits down, and as she sits down, she looks myself, my mother, and my aunt in the eye, and she says, all right, what's next? Does anybody have a good joke for me? <laughs> so back to your question about laughter. Uh, do I think that laughter got her to 96? You bet I do. Mm. There's no doubt for me that's that's been a part of her experience of life. To laugh more. I need to laugh more. Sure. And not just to even, you know, I mean, we can do, there's all sorts of laughing therapies. There's yoga therapy with laughter now. There's hundreds of different kinds of therapies with laughter. The Japanese have a whole practice, a laughing practice, where they just start laughing. (laughs) And then everybody chimes in. What we know from science is that it actually changes the chemical makeup of our body and brings us back to that state of calm and ease and maybe even a little bit of joy. And we're learning from, you know, electro um, spectrography and we're learning from vibrational frequency monitoring that those higher frequencies of feeling actually change the makeup of the body chemically. Well, there's an endorphin release from. It's almost like exercise when you when you laugh as well. 
Yep. Yeah. Is that's why you say stop? It hurts. You know, it doesn't hurt in the beginning because your endorphins are released, and then it actually, at some point, the endorphins kind of go away, and then it starts hurting as well. Um, the Japanese also have a practice forest bathing. Uh, Shinrin Yoku, Yoko, right? Yeah. Beautiful practice. Yes. Yeah, which is another whole mindset piece that goes into going and connecting with nature and hiking. And it's not actually like you're not rubbing leaves all over yourself. I mean, it's like, but you're bathing in the atmosphere of the forest, right? And uh, did I say that correctly? Did I say it? Yes. Okay, good. I um, We watched a documentary on that the other night. I thought it was really really cool. And, um, I, I love that. And so I have a funny story too. Uh, I managed restaurants for a number of years and a lot of times we'll deliver, I'll give away free dessert for people who are celebrating a birthday. And I get told by a server, we need to comp off a birthday dessert on happened to be at table 10. And I remember this and they said, yes, it's her 95th birthday. So I, go and comp the dessert. I go over and I, I asked the lady, I'm like, she's with her two uh, nieces. And I asked, you know, what's the secret? And she said, well, I want to live to be 105. Her niece looked at me and goes, see, she has a goal. And <laughs> how cool was that, that you're looking at a lady who's 95 years old and you're like, what's the secret? She goes, I want to live to be 105. And that was her whole game plan. I don't think it was whether, like, she skipped bacon for breakfast or, you know, those type of things. She just had a mindset, you know, and a goal, which I think goes back to the results formula. Her result was 105, and she's going to – everything's going to be reverse engineered to make decisions today to get you to to that point. So that's my funny story about, you know, a, a more recent one about, you know, longevity on the other other side of that. Wow. I got so many questions. How, I, I, go ahead. Go ahead. What I was just going to comment on was how great is that, that, you know, as a modern longevitarian, which these are your words, beautiful words, modern longevitarian, that there is a modern 95-year-old as a longevitarian who believed 105 is what that looks like. Right. And that's just a beautiful image of somebody putting the image in their mind. And back to Japan for just a minute. You know, Japan is considered by the World Bank to be the population with significantly more people over the age of 65 than any other country in the world. It's now Mm -hmm. topped Italy by large numbers, Portugal, Germany, Poland, or Finland, pardon me. So it's very important that if, I mean, looking at practices, why, in other words, why did we hone in on Japan? Well, partly because, you know, I speak Japanese as a second language, as you know, so I have a real affinity towards Japan. But more importantly, because this is where large groups of society have taken this modern longevitarian idea to a whole other level beyond even maybe the conversation in blue zones that most of us are familiar with. Right. And Okinawa and their diet and their practice of eating to 80% full and, and those things. 
it has to do with a combination of things, which is a whole longevitarian concept, you know, versus it being one thing. It's not that they live on an island, so to speak, and they have, you know, 13,000% more iodine in their diet than we do. It's probably, that's probably a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole thing. We can't mimic one aspect of that in America because they live in this whole culture that is producing results and having a high part of their population over 65 years old. We could try to learn from that and adopt some of those principles inside the, the country and the culture that we live in. And what if it could be fun and easy? I mean, laughter as a practice is pretty fun and easy. As a yeah. practice, hanging out in nature, bathing in nature is actually, for, for most of us, we can get to something in the natural world, whether it's Central Park or a park behind our house or taking a walk outside your front door. For most of us, we can get there, you know, with not too hard of a transition. A 10 or 15 minute walk, you know, a 10 or 15 minute drive. We don't actually have to go leave the middle of the city to go bathe in nature. Just need to be around some trees. Maybe meditate on a tulip. Maybe, you know, enjoy a piece of grass, a blade of grass that's springing from the crack in the sidewalk. That's a practice of engaging and, you know, in some way bathing in nature. So, Malia. I've got some questions here, kind of a, maybe a little bit of rapid fire questions, and they happen to correlate with the, the six macronutrients that I see we should focus on to extend our, our best years out for decades. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some questions here, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up, okay? Sounds great. Number one. If you could give just one tip on mindset, what would that be? If I could give just one tip on mindset, it's notice what it is that you're thinking. Notice. And if it's expansive, follow it. And if in any way you feel contracted or like we said, like you're terrorizing yourself, you're only one thought away. So think the new thought when it feels good. That, I'm taking notes. Sorry, <laughs> that that was amazing. <laughs> Sorry. All right. How do you think oxygen and the breath plays a role in longevity? Well, so from the nervous system perspective, you know, there's the sympathetic nervous system and there's the parasympathetic nervous system. And real briefly, and in that show, we all know the sympathetic nervous system as the fight, flight, or freeze portion of the brain. Some people call it the reptilian portion. The parasympathetic portion of the brain is where we do rest, digest, and create. And that's also kind of synonymous usually with the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And if we think about longevity in terms of creating a future we would love as opposed to, you know, being a reptile crawling out of a hole, then I think that there's some thriving to be said for being in the prefrontal cortex, which to me makes perfect sense. If I can simply just breathe and have access to my prefrontal cortex, gain more oxygen into my blood flow, which then 
lights up with blood, that prefrontal cortex, that's what I'm going to do. I want to thrive. That prefrontal cortex, that parasympathetic part of the brain is also the thriving center of the brain. And the sympathetic center is the survival part. I think we're all, we've all come along far enough. We can get that we're no longer in the surviving part. Let's thrive. And let's just do that by taking in a breath right now. I know one of the, um, the, I know I didn't finish my breath, right? <laughs> I started talking. <laughs> so I'll do that while you're answering the question. But I know that you uh, recommend a four-by-four four box breath, and you also recommend breathing in through your nose because a nose breath does a couple things. One, it sends a signal that everything's okay to your, to your brain. And the, the second thing is um, it actually helps use your diaphragm for breathing versus doing upper chest breathing. So um, can you explain to us what the four-by-four four box breath is? Sure. Well, sometimes the way that the mind can move out of that survival mode is to give it a command. And when we're giving it a command, we can give it a command that has numbers associated with it. So we can breathe in or take a breath in for a count of four. One, two, three, four. And at the top of the breath, we're going to hold it for four. Just hold it. One, two, three, four. Now we're going to breathe out for four. One, two, three, four. The bottom of that breath, before we take another breath in, we're going to hold it again for four. One, two, three, four. Now we can do that, and what happens is the mind now gets engaged with the breath. And so we're, we're taking breaths that are to a count. Anytime we count anything, which is just amazing, the prefrontal cortex must engage. So if we're breathing in for four, we're telling it to stay focused on the count of four, and it stays focused on the breathing. So the prefrontal cortex says, that's my job. My job is rest, digest, or create. So not only am I going to rest in that four, I'm going to create something. I'm going to create a count of four. And then I'm going to hold it for a count of four, which, as you know, engages that diaphragm. And then we're going to let it out for four. So, again, we're doing that. It's a beautiful way of engaging the breath, especially when you're new to taking in breathing as just a simple way of transitioning the mind from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system. And by the way, <laughs> this is just so funny. Have you ever noticed with a little kid, if they're crying, you can go to them and tickle them, and they can't cry. They have to laugh. You know we can only <laughs> feel one emotion at a time? Yeah, yeah, I do know that. Yeah, that's that's funny. I I tickled my son yesterday. He was he was kind of in a funky mood, and I tickled him, and he and I he's like, "You're just trying to make me laugh." I'm like, "I am." <laughs> Indeed, I am. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah, it's beautiful yeah. practice, right? We can move ourselves, and we can all do this. We not only do it for each other, but we can all do it for ourselves. We can. We don't have to hold, you know, some terrible future in our mind 
we can hold some great future in our mind and we can laugh or we can transition out of a terrible imagination into, that's why we're only one thought away, into something that feels good quickly through the breath, very quickly. So when all your studies about the brain-body connection, what bubbled up, if anything, about the importance of water and hydration in brain health? Wow, that is a conversation that we could probably have for another hour together. Okay, just give us one thing. (laughs) Yeah, suffice it to say that um, the body is mostly made up of water, which includes your brain. Scott, you probably know the statistic. Is it 75 or 78%? I've read one study that said the brain was 73% water, and I read another one that it was... 62% 62% fat, so that comes out to about 135%. Um, <laughs> so um, we'll go with the water one because this is the water question, right? But um, <laughs> well, let's look at it. Let's look at it. Just even if it's 2% water, the brain is an electrical circuit panel. And what is the fastest way for electrical circuits to be conducted? Well, water, of course, right? That's right. So why would water be massively important to the brain? Because we're using it all day long. And if we want to convey faster and easier, we just have to give it more water. We have to keep it hydrated so that those circuits can fire the way they're supposed to fire. What about sleep? How important is sleep for uh, the brain-body connection? Well, this is a beautiful new study that's coming out in neuroscience, and it's worth looking up for anybody interested. But the important thing to know here is that the brain is an organ, just like other organs in the body, the heart, the liver, the kidneys. And brain scientists started knowing, noticing that all the other organs had an intake of blood flow and then an outtake for toxins with the blood flow. And they started looking at the brain, and they said, oh, my gosh, you know, the brain, you know how the heart has arteries, And then it has veins, right? One carries oxygen to the heart. The other one carries oxygen away, including all the other great things that come with the oxygen, oxygenated blood, or it returns non-oxygenated blood to the heart for reoxygenation. So they were looking at the brain, and they said, how is this possible that the brain doesn't have what we consider to be a return system? It seems that the blood flow goes in one sex, one direction up to the brain, but there's no way for um, things like environmental toxins, chemical toxins, um, even concussion is a great example. That's just broke blood vessel that has been broken, and it now looks just like a bruise, only it's on the inside of your brain. How does the brain carry away that blood? Well, guess when it carries it away? Oh, when you're sleeping. During sleep. That's right. Literally, the blood flow reverses during sleep. Hmm. There has never been a more critical time for the humankind to understand that, that they must have sleep so that the things that are in the brain that need to be flushed can be flushed. That's so important. That's so important. I know mindset is the driver of all of the things, but all the other things that I look at, oxygen, water, sleep, food, movement. I think sleep is the foundation of 
our longevity, our health, our wellness, our how we feel in the morning, how we think. I mean, just the negative impact of not getting enough sleep would be things like poor memory, trouble with thinking, being moody, emotional, quick-tempered. I know that Dr. Travis Bradbury, the co-author of Emotional Intelligence 2.0, says that one of the ways to, to increase your emotional quotient, your EQ, is to clean up your sleep hygiene. And then very important, it weakens your immunity. So if you want a stronger immune system, get more sleep, get better sleep. It raises your blood pressure if you don't get enough sleep, lower sex drive, increases your chance of accidents, balance goes down. You can gain weight because your body doesn't know when to regulate it, your, your hunger, <clears throat> excuse me, hunger pains. And it can increase your chance of type 2 diabetes because of the impact of insulin release because due to lack of sleep. And so it's, it's super important. And I, I hadn't heard of that study yet about blood flow reversing. I have heard about cleaning up damaged proteins and things like that in the brain while you're sleeping and the importance of activated charcoal at night, those type of things. But that's that's super eye-opening. It's very eye-opening. So, and what's so interesting is how many studies that we're doing on this, and partly because so many people have sleep apnea. Hmm. So many people have sleep apnea. And, you know, there's a lot of people, are, I don't want a mask to sleep better. And you don't necessarily need a mask to sleep better. You know, sometimes it's a little bit of weight loss that will do it. Intermittent fasting can help you drop the 10 or 15 pounds that will actually make you sleep better. And suddenly the sleep apnea is a different conversation because you don't have the same impact on the body. But, right. but it's more important is, you know, we are dynamic creatures and science doesn't know everything right now. And you have said it so many times, which I just think is such a gift to anybody listening, which is that there's no one way. Everybody has to explore for themselves. And this is a place where people say, well, I only need four hours. I only need three hours. I only need six hours. And some people say, I need eight, right? Okay, well, I heard you. I heard you that not everybody's one way. And isn't it interesting that we could do a very quick experiment where we could just try and get an extra hour and see if that shifts anything over the course of 21 days? You know, what made a huge difference for me was not trying to get the extra hour, which would be a, a great experiment because I think that a lot of people, and you probably could do the research on how many of people in America are not getting enough sleep or people in the world aren't getting enough sleep. And so an extra hour would be a great one, was having a more consistent time of going to bed. And that really helped me because I was be, be able to make my sleep more efficient than it would be normally. And so I think, but, you know, combination of those two things, have a consistent time going to sleep and trying to get an extra hour of sleep would be a true, you know, experiment because that's cleaning up your, your hygiene in a well versus like, okay, tonight I'm going to go to bed at 2 a.m., but I'm going to sleep till 10 because it's Saturday. And then during the week, I'm going to go to bed at, you know, 10 and get up at six and just moving those times around sometimes really jacks with your, your sleep, sleep quality. So there's a hundred ways or more, as we said, any kind of number of ways that you could experiment with your own life, right? 
And this is what becomes powerful about the whole process. We're saying, and I think what you're demonstrating here is that it's an absolute macronutrient, one we cannot overlook. And right. you could do it in a fun and easy way. You could just go to bed every night at the same time, see what happens. Right, exactly. So you mentioned food, you, or you mentioned intermittent fasting. Uh, you know, most, most people look at food first, especially when it comes to, to health and wellness, longevity. A, do you fast, and uh, what are your current beliefs about uh, a healthy diet? So to answer a yes, I intermittent fast. I absolutely believe in it for my overall health and well-being, and I also believe in it for my brain. So when I let my stomach, which they're saying that there is a direct causality to um, gut biome and the health of your mind, when I let my stomach rest for 18 hours or 20 hours um, in an intermittent fast, and, some, and I've been known to you know, fast, um, water fast for three days at a time. And, um, you know, I still go to parties and I still have my active life and I'm just not eating for those three days. I'm drinking water. So for me, it's important to do that. Highly important. Why is that? Because I want to know what's on the other side of that. I want to know how do I function at the end of 20, 18 hours without food? How do I, you know, am I functioning differently? And here's what happened for me. The concept of hangry went away. Hmm. I, because I intermittent fast, I am clear that food does not control me. There was not, I, I, before that, I, you know, hangry was absolutely a thing. Like, you know, I would, if I wasn't getting my food at certain hours of the day, then I would start to get irritable. When I noticed my irritability, I'd say, why am I irritable? And it always seemed to come back to food. And, and then when I started intermittent fasting, I thought, oh, well, geez, I, I'm never angry because I'm not with food. And that single thing right there was enough for me to say this is valuable for me. I'm not interested in being angry. So I'm certainly not going to let food control me. That's exactly why this is fifth on the list. I mean, our mind is the umbrella that really kind of controls everything. Then, you know, four minutes without oxygen, you start losing brain cells. Three to seven days without water, you're, you're going to pass away. Sleep deprivation is something that is hugely impactful on a negative way. But then food, we actually can go longer without food. We don't have to have three square meals. We don't have to have breakfast. So, like, I pray years. I haven't had breakfast for the majority of the time unless it's celebrating like a family birthday or special occasion. That's why food's down the list in the order of importance in terms of what these macronutrients are because I agree with you 100%. And the gut is becoming more known as the importance of its driver in our, our health. And so when you start mentioning the, the gut microbiome and also – you know, hangry and being, you know, reliant on carb to being a carb burner versus being a fat burner. It's, it's, uh, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I want to add something here if you don't mind. <laughs> Go ahead. So one of, one of the um, more important mindset shifts that I had for myself only being one thought away was this question. What is so different about the body of the 1970s? 
my grandparents, for example, in the 70s versus the body of um, older people today. Because, you know, when I, in, in the 70s, you know, my grandparents were in their 50s, right? And so I'm looking at, you know, I'm, I'm not 50 yet, but I'm looking at my approaching 50th birth, and I'm thinking, God, you know, my, my grandparents were felt. They were fit. They were water skiing, hiking. Um, they, they really looked great. And they never looked puffy, and that's just what I call it, puffy. They, they just looked um, lean and um, like humans. I don't know how to describe it other than that for the moment. So the, and my mindset was, you know, tell me, tell me about the 70s body, what was going on differently then. And when I look at the 70s body versus, you know, the puffy bodies now, I say to myself, God, you know, I would, I would love to be the 70s body. That interests me more. And then inter, intermittent fasting came along, and I learned about the fat-burning power of intermittent fasting. And I went, oh, my gosh, that's it. And within very short order, within, I don't know, three months or something, um, I had a similar experience to you where just, you know, pounds melted away. Melted away. And finally I could see my own facial cheekbones. Mm. And that made the world a difference for me. I did the experiment. And it was a very quick and certain period of time that it occurred. You know, a 90-day experiment is a very short period of time to find out if, you know, some of this is true for other people. And that's what I do. I experiment on myself all the time. And that's the way I looked at it was, I mean, at the time, I'd been managing restaurants and food service facilities for about 20 years. And here I am going, I'm going to start not eating or under eating for 20 hours and then overeating for four hours and then it starts working and then going, wow, if most people ate like me, I'd be unemployed, right? It's really an interesting experiment when you start looking at how the body performs at its best and how we are trained or some people might even say brainwashed to consume food. I mean, sugar consumption increases every year. Carb, carb, up until recently, carb consumption has increased. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And what you're calling puffy could be overweight or it could be inflammation. And I really love that question. You know, what is the difference between the 70s body uh, and the body of today at the same age? And I'd, I'd have to agree. We're, we're puffier but we're, we're overweight, we're more inflamed, we're not as active as, as what was happening back then. And, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with our mindset shifting a little bit about what we could be doing. There was no Netflix to binge on in the 70s. We had three or four channels, right? So we were doing other things. And that has to do, you mentioned hiking and water skiing. So what about movement and exercise what are your thoughts on on that and maybe with mindset or connection to the brain or maybe not well the way that i look at it and i i just try and boil everything down to its simplest component part and for me that's fun and easy so forgive me if these ideas seem as base of concepts as you could possibly imagine 
I'm not going to tell you about some large complexity, but look at the human body. Look at all the moving parts that we have. If that tells me that we're supposed to be moving that item. We're supposed to be moving it. We're supposed to be lubricating it. And so for me, movement is everything. Before I'm, and I'm just going to tease everybody for a minute and myself too, I think that ankles are the fountain of youth. I really do. In the body, if you can move your ankles and you can turn them you know, right, and you can turn them left, and you can flex forward, and you can flex back. The rest of your body actually demonstrates a high level of health. So I'm doing things that are promoting that kind of health and that kind of fluidity and flexibility and motion, and I'm, I'm involved in it, you know, on a recurrent basis. The one thing that you brought up here, which was so great, um, at the beginning was, you know, these different quotes and um, – And I I love Orange Theory. I love the variety that it provides. But more importantly, I'll never forget a coach in Orange Theory saying very clearly, the athlete is in the mind. And back to what you said to begin with. When I started testing that theory for myself, whether it was on the treadmill or um, in the weight room or, you know, uh, on the rowing machine, I really got for myself that my athlete is in my mind. I can tell my body that today we're going to go a half a mile further. And then the body follows my command. Just like Bruce Lee said, the body will follow the mind. Arnold Schwarzenegger said the same thing, just a slightly Mm -hmm. different way. Said, where is it? I want to make sure I read it exactly. Oh, here it is. It says, where the mind goes, the body will follow. You you know, when you look at ankles are the fountain of youth, which is a great quote. (laughs) I love that. There's actually a Brazilian study on predicting a lifespan on how well people get up up and down from the floor. And if you use a knee or an elbow or a hand or you add up these points and the higher score you get, the less time you're going to be here on earth, the lower your life expectancy. And when you start talking about ankles and ankle flexibility and all of those things, that rings true. So, you know, for me to, I I look at things that happen to people as they age, loss of balance, uh, you know, to become more fragile, you know, you look at like your, your grandmother fell and what happens a lot of times when people get older, they fall or break a pelvis or a bone or something like that, that could really put a damper on their quality of life moving forward. And a lot of people actually is kind of beginning of the end for them. And so when you start looking at those things, so why not work out now to work on a flexibility, but also increasing balance and exercises that are functional and durable. And sometimes I do, I'll, instead of doing lunges, I will literally, that time period worked out for lunges will be, I will literally get up and down off of the floor to work on that. Because I remember my grandparents saying, and even sometimes my parents saying, it's easier to get down than it is to get up. And if it's so hard as we age to get up off the floor, and it is a true indicator of life expectancy, why not put it in your workout routine when you're in your 40s and 50s and practice 
getting up off the floor? That's my question I ask myself. (laughs) And that, you know, I love fun and easy. So I'm just, one of the other things I always say, because I've heard what what you said before a hundred thousand times myself, right? It's easier to get down than it is to get up. And I, I, I really believe that we're only thought away, one thought away from whatever we would love. And so I started thinking, how am I going to reframe that for myself? And so this is what I hear. You got to get down to get up. You got to get up to get <laughs> down, right? Like I'm boogieing right. in my mind. If, and if I'm like you're thinking, I've got to get up to get down. In other words, I'm going to go down on the floor first, and then I'm going to get up. And I'm going to practice right. that. It changes. It's a game changer. It is, because if that's what the struggle is, why not – just focus on it. I, I've heard people say that hinges that move don't rust. So basically people who say that it's easier to get down than it is gets up, they don't actually practice that move and those joints become rusty and that and those muscles become weak. So why doesn't it say if I'm going to perform at my best at 85, 95 years old, why don't I practice those moves starting now? I mean, it could be 40 years you're actually practicing and exercising, getting up off the floor. And you get up off the floor, and it's no different for you 30 years from now than it is today. It actually may be better because it's something that you put into practice. And there's, there's, you know, the nervous system becomes used to doing that and firing those muscles a certain way. Those joints don't hurt, hurt and ache anymore. You have the flexibility to do that. You have the strength to do that. You may even get to the point where you're doing it, you're holding a dumbbell. So you're adding some weight to that and creating more action around that as well. And so you can can build on it. And that just makes perfect sense to me to do that. But now I've got it, uh, that song stuck in my mind, and so I'll be boogieing to that as I do that <laughs> next time I work out. Well, I think this is a mindset conversation. You know, I think you're a bit of a martial artist, and I, of course, study one of those practices as a matter of the way it is because I love Japanese culture. But the first thing that you learn is how to fall. Mm. And you practice it over and over and over. If you go into a yellow belt class of any one of the martial arts, it's the first thing you learn. And I think that that's also a good analogy for life. And, you know, we keep talking about this experiment and making sure that you do an experiment with these, you know, macronutrients. Pick any one of them. Pick all of them. It's your choice. But do an experiment and fall down a little in your experiment and then get back up. But don't be afraid to take the chance. We, you and I call this because you know it's a coin that term that we coined, but massive messy action. That's I, I think that's the most important thing, right? You, you, is taking the action, but even that, the follow up is is getting back up and having the courage to get back up and try it again in a different way, or maybe the same way with a tweak or a massive overhaul. And that's that's the point here is inspiring that action in yourself because nobody can take action for you. That's the one thing we're sure of. Nobody can take action for you. You must take your own action. Well, that's the the whole point of me starting this podcast and the whole point of me putting the Modern Longevitarian brand, you know, out into the world is to inspire action because we all are starting at a different place. We all have a different mindset. We all have – 
let's, let's face it, we all have a very unique microbiome in our guts because each one of us has had a unique set of prescriptions for antibiotics. Let's just talk about that. Somebody in Africa probably has had zero, and somebody in the U.S. who has been sick their whole life has probably had 100. And, and so we all were starting in a different place physically and mentally, and we're all individuals because of that. And so start where you are, but just start today on trying to live a little bit better each and every day. And, and so that's the whole, the whole point of this. And so, yes, you're going to take action. It's going to be messy in the beginning because if you wait for it to be perfect, then you'll never take action. The first time that I changed my diet, I probably made it worse than I did in any effort to try to make it better. And I started, had to make adjustments and make, and over time, learn things, learn what worked for me, learn what didn't work for me. And now, you know, I have a diet that works really well for me most of the time. There are times that I have things by accident or on purpose that, that don't, you know, don't sit well with me. And, and it's, well, what do you do? You learn from that and you move forward and you make adjustments. And that's what I really want people to do is just start taking control of their own health. And the, the whole goal is not to live forever, not to live 700 years or even 120 years. The whole goal with this is to try to extend your prime years out as far as possible. So, Malia, before I ask my last question, where can people find you online? Thanks for asking, Scott. So people could find me in two different places. Um, as you know, I love peace and promoting peace in the world. So please visit my podcast at peaceamplified.com. Or you can come and see me as a life mastery coach. And that's at soulfireforyou.com. I loved speaking with you today, Scott. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. I'll put both of those links in the show notes so people can can find you. So here's the last question. What is the one change that people can make today that will impact extending their prime years? What's the one change that people can make today to extend their prime years? It's okay to feel good. And start choosing to feel good more. This is a more or less game. Feel good more. The results will be an extension of whatever it is you would love in your life. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to feel joy. I have an appointment with joy every day on my calendar. I literally generate joy. doesn't matter what I'm doing. That reminder comes in, and I generate joy. I'm not letting one day go by without feeling joy. Mm. Malia Brown, it's okay to feel good. It's been such a pleasure. It's been an eye-opening conversation with you, and the importance of mindset has really been it's been burnt in deeper than I ever would have imagined before we started the conversation just over an hour ago. I can't thank you enough for coming on and being our guest on the show. And I just wanted to say I have so much gratitude for you and I'm going to do everything I can to amplify peace in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. 
The statements expressed in this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. This is the Modern Longevitarian Podcast, and I'm Scott Stanfield. I would like to personally say thank you for listening to the show, and please join the Modern Longevitarian Facebook group by clicking on the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on Instagram at straightcabbage. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. This show is sponsored by Magnesium with Immune Boost. Stay hydrated with the best electrolytes you can get at electrolife.com forward slash shop.